This is Sciographies, an introduction to the people who make science happen. I'm your host, David Barkley. I'm an oceanographer with the Faculty of Science here at Dalhousie University. And on Sciographies, I interview different types of scientists about what shaped their interests, their career path, and how they get their research ideas. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we talked to Dr. Tess Cyrus, an associate professor in the Department of Economics here at Dow. Dr. Cyrus grew up in sunny California, but she couldn't wait to escape the American dream and discover what life was like in other areas of the world. The first time she traveled internationally was during a study abroad program in university. And that experience planted the seed for most of her future research. As an economist, Dr. Cyrus is interested in understanding the forces that bring people together. She studies international trade and bilateral trade flows with an emphasis on how culture plays a role in these processes. As a professor, she's also interested in designing and improving the economics curriculum, a commitment that she's been recognized for with the Faculty of Science Award for Excellence in Teaching. Okay, so yeah, usually like to start at the very beginning. <laughs> and for you, let's just say a bit of a, a fabled storied beginning for all of us. Anaheim, California. The home of Disneyland. Yeah. The happiest place on earth. Yeah, I am still a big fan of Disneyland, I have to say. So yeah, that's right. I was born in LA, but I grew up in Orange County, which is in between Los Angeles and San Diego. So I grew up in the suburbs. Um, my parents were divorced when I was five. So I lived in various places around Orange County with both my mom and my dad. But um, Anaheim is where I lived when I was in high school, living with my dad. I went to Walt Disney Elementary School when I was in kindergarten. So big fan of the mouse. We're, we're all imagining paradise, but... It's a grid city? Yes. And that's it's hot. true. Um, it is hot because it's a little bit inland. So to get to the beach would be about a half hour drive. But we did have a pool in the backyard. And we weren't rich, you know, just middle class. Mm -hmm. Most people had a pool in the backyard, a, a diving board and a slide. And if you climbed up to the top of the slide, you could see the Disneyland fireworks every night at 9 p.m. So, you know, I already mentioned that I'm a child of divorced parents, so I wouldn't <laughs> say that it was idyllic. Yeah. But it was sunny, that's yes. for sure. I think there's like a side of California that people don't appreciate where the sunshine's actually sort of oppressive. I do like seasons. Um, I don't mind the weather in Halifax. You know, September when the leaves start to change, it's exciting. It's crisp. It's, you know, September is the new year for academics and the, the change in the seasons is part of that. Did you go to one of those high schools where like the lockers were outdoors? Yes. So cool. No, I always wanted to, isn't that strange? I always wanted to, you know, you watch TV shows and all yeah. of these high schools and buildings and the lockers in the hallway. I don't think we even had an indoor cafeteria. We had to sit outside wow. for lunch. <laughs> yes. Um, so what other, you know, California cultural touchstones impacted your life? You know, any family that has a pool, when the kids arrive, those kids learn how to swim before they learn how to walk. So I did, I did know how to swim before I, I knew how to walk. So I've always been a, a good swimmer. And I do love the ocean. Yeah. Uh, we used to go to Huntington Beach yeah. 
from what that was the closest beach to my dad's house in Laguna Beach when I was living at my mom's house. So you mentioned, yeah, your sort of middle class existence. And did you take a shine to academics uh, in in high school or were you ambivalent? No, no, I was a good student. I was a really good student. I think the way I dealt with family kind of issues was to turn into a reader. I was a big reader. That was the way that I could escape from the world. Yeah. So I was banned from reading at the dining table, so I would read the heck out of those breakfast cereal boxes and go, niacin, look at that. Wow, (laughs) fantastic. Look, there's something free inside. I would hide books in the garage or outside so that when my parents said, get out of here, go to the park, I would say, all right. And I would go and get my book out of the garage, and I would go to the park and read my book. Wow. I was a good student in high school. I was able to do well even though I was a procrastinator, so I would do things at the last minute and still end up doing fine. So I learned some bad habits that I really had to work hard to unlearn when I got to college because that did not work anymore. So you're not a procrastinator now? No, I think I've learned. I think I really have. So there's hope. Um, (laughs) It did take some time. (laughs) Although I have to say, like every academic... Maybe not every academic. Yeah. Maybe this is just me. But I I do have a habit of signing up for conferences for papers that I haven't written yet yeah. just to make myself get it done. I but, call it lighting a fire. I don't I don't say I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah. You gotta put the fire under your seat and and hope for the best. Yeah, exactly. So that was quite obvious that you would be uh, a book learning person. Now, university, was that a given in your family? I mean, it did feel like a given to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I was, a, as I said, I was a good student in high school. I had near perfect grades. I had really high SAT scores. So it didn't even occur to me that it would be hard to get into UCLA, which is where I went to college. Mm-hmm. So UCLA was far enough away from where I grew up in Orange County that I, I wouldn't commute. It yeah. was possible to commute, but commuting in L.A. is always something to be it. avoided. So it was a good place for me. And also, because, because I was a good student in high school, I was good at everything, but I wasn't exceptionally good at any one thing. So it wasn't obvious to me what I was going to study. I think I changed my major three or four times before I even set foot on campus. Yeah. Every time I took an interesting class in high school, I would say, oh, well, that's, that's interesting. That's what I'm going to do. Um, most of the time, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. You know, I didn't really know what people did. I didn't know what kind of jobs were available. My dad worked in a lab. My mom was a nurse. I have a lot of aunts and uncles who were nurses or doctors mm-hmm. or, you know, an aunt who's a chemist. So I had a pretty good idea of those kinds of jobs. But in terms of just office jobs, I would actually go up to friends' parents and say, what exactly do you do all day? (laughs) And they would all say something like, oh, I just push paper around. And I was so frustrated. I would go, but that (laughs) means nothing. I actually really want to know the answer to this question. So I went back to lawyer was... The main idea, because I was on a, I was in a club in high school called Mock Trial, mm-hmm. and we would 
be on a team and we would be, it was organized throughout the whole county. We'd be given a case and then we would either have to be the prosecution or the defense and we would meet in real courtrooms yeah. presided over by real judges. Well, yeah, it was real fantastic. Real judges were giving you their time. Yes, in wow. the evenings. Yeah, it was really, it was great. Looking back, it yeah. was a wonderful opportunity. But then you, I took a psychology class and I thought, I want to study psychology. Right. And then I took physics and I said, I want to study physics. I just kept changing my mind. Okay. UCLA was a good place for me because I knew that whatever I ended up studying, it would it would be a strong enough department. Yeah. You know, I wasn't limiting myself by going to a, a strong. A, it's a strong a public institution. It, yeah. Excels in all Exactly. Fields. But when I started, I was studying chemistry and physics, and that didn't go well. It just wasn't so? the right fit for me. The chemistry labs just got on my nerves. I mean, when you say chemistry didn't go well, I just assume that you like burnt down a lab or something like that. There were no accidents with Bunsen burners. <laughs> no, it's just every time, every week it would come time for the lab and I would just have to drag myself out of my dorm room. It's kind of like in first year though, the like first lab is like, what's the density of water? So they're pretty boring, right? Was that it? I, uh, we had, you know, I felt like we had to be so precise with everything and I just didn't care. Mm -hmm. I just didn't care. <laughs> I thought this is just not going to be my future. Okay, fair enough. But then I did not know what to do. Yeah. I was just flailing around. So I talked to a bunch of friends and one of my friends was taking economics and said, take my economics class with me. So normally you would take microeconomics and then macroeconomics, but you can, you can actually take them in any order. So that first mm -hmm. class was a macroeconomics class. And I said, wow, this is it. This is it. What was it about macroeconomics that gave you the wow feeling? The idea of economics was that you could approach a topic scientifically, you could formulate hypotheses, you could test those hypotheses against the data in a really rigorous way, but what you were testing was something to do with the behavior of people. So that I found really interesting to try to examine human behavior that's, that's changeable but do it in a scientific way. So it's a long way from you know your first class in macroeconomics to a PhD and becoming an economist. So so what happened? I still had the idea in my head that I might become a lawyer. I mean, an undergraduate degree in economics does not qualify a person to become an economist. Okay. But then I spent a year abroad. Where did you go? I went to St. Andrews University in Scotland, which is mm -hmm. where Prince William went. I was no. there just a few years before, <coughs> just a few years before. You just missed him. Just missed him. Missed my opportunity. <laughs> so what made, what made St. Andrews, so there are a couple of ways in which this expanded my horizons. The first was academically, because the British system, the Scottish system is a little different from the English system. It's a four-year degree, not a three-year degree in Scotland. So I was taking fourth-year classes, and the system there was to have students meet in small groups of like two students with a professor called a tutor, but it wasn't a TA, it was a professor, once a week. 
So I couldn't really procrastinate because I was, <laughs> you know, meeting with the professor every week and writing essays, which I hadn't really done before. The classes at UCLA were, I think my smallest class up until then was about 80 students. So this was a small group now, all of a sudden. And so we could write essays as opposed to just doing problem sets and writing exams. So I was writing essays and we were studying material that was more advanced than what I had done at UCLA because we weren't reading textbooks anymore. We were reading actual economics journal articles. So I was seeing current research and I hadn't done that before. And I did do really well academically. I uh, won an award for being the best student on the end of the year exams. But that that made me think that, oh, maybe this is, maybe I should think about graduate school in economics. But in addition to the academic side, I found it so fascinating to be studying in another country, to be living elsewhere. And I did a lot of travel. I think they had to drag me back to the U.S. by my hair by August because I just, I traveled until I was completely out of money in the summer. Where did you go? All over Europe to, you know, Hungary and Czechoslovakia, which were still communist at that Mm -hmm. time, Um, you know, all over Western Europe. I had a Eurail pass and I would, if I didn't have enough money for the youth hostel, I would take an overnight train. I mean, that's the extent (laughs) that we were at there. (laughs) But even throughout the whole school year of studying, getting to know people and getting to see how people in different countries are different, which sounds very obvious, but my family hadn't really done much travel. We had gone to visit relatives in the Midwest for vacation, and that's pretty much it. I hadn't been to a foreign country except for a few day trips to Mexico just over the border because we were only a couple of hours away. But to go to Europe and to meet people and to study with them and to get to know them and to find out how they're different. How are things different? How do people interact differently? How do they think about the world differently? How are their laws different? How are their norms of behavior different? Um, So that really sparked my interest in international economics and in particular in international trade and led to the research that I did in graduate school and really continuing on, which is to really try to understand these interactions. So trade is a way of interacting. We talk about trade being between two countries, you know, Canada exports to the U.S. or imports from the U.S. But we're not exporting as a country. They're individual firms that are exporting to individual firms or, or people in another country. So what makes those interactions happen? What's... You know, what, what, is, what is it that's drawing us together? What are the similarities that are pulling us together or the differences? So it was that year abroad that really made me think, I want to go to graduate school. Yeah. And uh, where were you considering? What, what were all the graduate school options? How did you even make that decision? Basically, I just looked. I was probably the U.S. News and World Report <laughs> rankings of the top economics programs. So I don't think I even really thought in terms of working with a particular professor. That's just not how it works in economics. You don't work in someone's lab. You don't work with someone else's projects. You you do your own own thesis from start to finish. So I applied to all of the top programs. And Berkeley was the first place that I heard from, and they offered me the most money. So it was a pretty easy decision. When you apply to graduate school as an economist, 
you have a project in mind? Do you have a hypothesis in mind? Do you got to write about a little one pager? You do, but it has no bearing okay. on anything Doesn't that matter. happens later. <laughs> no. So but I you... knew I wanted to study international economics, so yeah. I had a pretty good idea that I wanted to focus on that. But I thought that I wanted to work for the World Bank or one of those big yeah. non-governmental organizations. That's what I thought I wanted to do, not be an academic necessarily. And what was the next step? You had imagined you'd be working for a big institution, right. but how well, did you decide so, to stay in academia? So I was assigned to be a TA in the second semester of my first year, and I found it very challenging to be a TA because I felt like I've spent all of this time buried in math, and if you ask me how to solve a Hamiltonian or any kind of constrained optimization problem, that I can do. But if you ask me, does it really matter that the U.S. has a trade deficit? I would say... I have no idea. Like all of my understanding of the economy was gone and all I could do was just math. So I was so worried that I would stand in front of a group of first year students and they would ask me a question and I would just blank out. Right. And then I got to the end of the semester and I said, that was actually okay. (laughs) It turns out that when they asked me questions, I could answer them or I could say, I'm not sure I'll get back to you. And that was a satisfactory answer. So then I was like, I actually really like this. It's fun to be in front of a classroom. And that's when I thought, maybe this is what I should do. Okay. I was still open to all of the, all of the different possibilities. And I applied to a lot of different jobs. Really? And I did get a I did get some job offers that were not the World Bank, but some governmental organizations in Washington, DC. And I really had to think about it. Yeah. But the thing about Dalhousie was that I really liked the people in the department. Yeah. People really were on my side. Yeah. They wanted to understand what I had done. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be refreshing. Really. Yeah, and that proved to be true. And that proved to be true. (laughs) It was absolutely the right decision. So you came here, you're starting your own own thing, um, and you're teaching for the first time. Exactly. How was that? It was scary. I was assigned to teach first-year microeconomics in my first semester, as well as a graduate class. And my colleague, Mike Bradfield, who's now retired, he was a great mentor in terms of teaching for me, because I could see he had very high expectations for the students. He would ask them questions where I would say, that's not, I don't even know the answer to that, because it would be something where you really had to make an argument in one direction or another. And he would say, that's the fun of it. Let's see what they come up with. Yeah. And I found that surprising for a first year class. Right. But that's something that I think I did learn at that time. You can create high expectations for students as long as you give them the support that allows them to meet those expectations. So it was really good that I was thrown into that, to teaching the, a first-year class. Was it last year you won an award for teaching excellence? Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, 2019. Yeah. What great revelations have you had along the way that you can share with us? about how to teach effectively? When I was a graduate student, one of my 
one of my instructors won a teaching award. And the quote that I remember from her teaching statement, I guess, is nothing has to be confusing or boring. And that sounds very simple, but it's not, mm. right? So nothing has to be confusing means even when you're explaining topics that are quite challenging, you really have to think like a student thinks yeah. and say, what would I be having trouble with if I were seeing this for the first time? And of course, the more you teach, the more you see what problems students are going to have. So nothing has to be confusing, but also nothing has to be boring. You can always bring in interesting examples, yeah. real world examples, of which there are many <laughs> in economics, and that Mostly. helps to make the material more accessible. But the other thing is to come into class in a good mood. And that again seems obvious, but apparently, according to my students, it isn't. People are so serious about their topics. These are such important things that we are trying to convey to our students. But it's thrilling. We have fantastic, we're so lucky to have the jobs that we have. Yeah. And we're so lucky to be able to teach the students that we have. And I think going into class with a smile on my face is really the least that I can do. This is good. This is good advice. I'm. That was question purely just for me. That was not for. <laughs> yeah. So I did want to talk a little bit about your research as well. Sure. The underlying current of all of this. So do you have any pet trade problems that you love looking at? My general interest has stayed the same since I had that year abroad, which mm -hmm. is to see how the differences or the similarities between people in different countries have a link to the trade that takes place between them. So even going back to my thesis in graduate school, one of the papers in my thesis looked at these various elements like common language or common legal system, how those would impact trade between two countries. But then more recently, I was looking at these norms of behavior. So there's, there's a question that researchers have asked people in different countries over different time periods that um, has been used in a lot of research in economics and probably other fields, which is the question of interpersonal trust. So they ask people, to what extent do you agree with a statement, most people can be trusted? So some okay. people, you would think, I don't know, how would you answer that question? I would say, yeah, I think most people can be yeah. trusted. But yeah. answers are very different around the world. Really? And so the answer to that question, the average answer in a country to the question, yeah. you know, to what extent can people be trusted, has been shown to be linked to GDP per capita. Yeah. So where there's more trust, you can imagine people are more likely to be willing to engage in right. transactions. And so that will tend to raise trade and raise GDP. But what I found was that it's not just having high trust, it's being similar in your level of trust. Okay. To say, all right, we're on the same I mean, I am field. imagining two very untrust, untrusting people trying to negotiate a deal. But what that means is that they would be more likely to say, okay, we're going to have to have a contract that's signed by okay, both parties. Sure, right. And then they're both in agreement that that's what they would need, <laughs> yeah. right, in order to be willing to ship goods from one country to another. Right. Whereas two countries that are both trusting, 
would say, all right, well, payable on demand, you've got 60 days or whatever. But the the problem is if they're different, if they have these different expectations, then it's harder to communicate. Someone gets offended. The whole thing breaks down. There you go. Yeah. So being able to quantify something like that, a social norm like trust, would allow me to, you know, see the see the impact mm-hmm. on bilateral trade. The data set that I found is called the World Value Survey, which okay. is based in Sweden, I think. And they've been running surveys that are representative samples um, in various countries going back to the 1980s. So it's possible to see how these measures of culture have an impact on trade, but also maybe trade flows have an impact on culture. Right, of course. Because as you get to know more about a country through importing their goods, maybe your culture is going to get more similar to theirs. Right. So I, I did find that the causality goes in both directions like that. Yeah. That's a topic that I've spent a lot of time on and that I've still sort of move to various related topics, but um, I have been maybe reaching the end of that in terms of how much more can I wring out of this rag. So I have been thinking about other things. One of those projects has been going on for a few years and looks at the impact of imports from China on health outcomes in Canada, measured at the level of the local labor market. So researchers in the U.S. have found very strong adverse labor market implications of Mm -hmm. imports from China. Even if we think that trade is beneficial to the whole country, which we generally do, it obviously does have some adverse implications for people in certain areas. Other researchers have found adverse health implications in the U.S., maybe from work stress, trying to compete with the Chinese imports or the stress of losing your job, right? In contrast to the U.S. results, we don't find an impact. And our conclusion from that is that it's our social safety net that's giving us a different answer than the U.S. And I think that's a general statement that one could make, even right from the beginning, talking about comparative advantage, the simplest models of international trade, they're always winners and losers, right? Even if we say the country as a whole is better off, well, there's still some people who are going to be worse off because now the goods that they used to produce are being imported from another country instead. And in the long run, I'm going to put quotes around that, in the long run, they can learn new skills or move to other industries, retrain, move somewhere else. But in the medium run, that might be a painful adjustment process. So that does point to the importance of the social safety net Mm -hmm. to help people through that adjustment. Right. And that's something that we have in Canada that the U.S. doesn't have. So what's next for you? Now that I'm more established in my career, I'm not going to say old, <laughs> but um, I've realized that there's a set of journals that publish articles on economics education, which yeah. I never really thought about. But a colleague of mine who also teaches the first year, she and I have decided to write a paper about an experiment that we did in our first year class, where a few years ago we decided that students were just not engaged enough at the first year level. So we decided to make some changes to the way that we taught first year. In particular, we made 
tutorials mandatory and we gave our yeah. TAs a lot of training and we had them run these games and experiments and exercises that students we hoped would find interesting and would find to be relevant to their studies. And we gave students a survey for the two semesters before the changes and the two semesters after the changes. And then we could do a statistical analysis yeah. to find out if our changes actually had an impact on grades, but also on self-reported learning mm -hmm. by students. And we were very pleased to find out that there is an impact. And we did find the strongest impact at the bottom end which was so reassuring to see because those are the students that we wanted to grab. We wanted to say, all right, let's make first year a better experience for you. So it's been really fun because I, I've never really thought that much about the, the economics of economic education. Yeah. But now that I know it's a field, I feel as though this is something that I should be doing at this stage of my career. I think this is something that I am hopefully going to be looking more into. Yeah, so a bit of a, a pivot. Maybe. Very slight, but yeah. still. It, I mean, it's developing a new arm of your research. Is, exactly. It's not nothing. That's a bit of work. It's cool. Fun. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. It's been very interesting. It's been a pleasure for yeah. me. I, I know I've learned a little bit. <laughs> which means it's good, which means it was a good one. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Okay. In our next episode, we'll be talking to Sophia Stone, a biologist who studies how plants cope with changes in their environment. If you're enjoying the Sciographies podcast, hit subscribe, give us a rating, write some comments. I'm your host, David Barkley. Thanks for listening. Sciographies is brought to you by Dalhousie University's Faculty of Science and CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Our producer is Nicole Killowy. You can learn more about Sciographies at dal.ca slash Sciographies.